0: everyone. Welcome back to Lifelong Podcast. I'm your host, Heidi Kumjan, and thank you so much for being here. I am going to jump right into it right away because I have Dr. Tanya Dempsey joining me today, who is an expert in chronic diseases, autoimmune disorders, mast cell activation syndrome, and all things vector-borne illnesses, Lyme disease. She is really paving the way with these areas. She is total expert. I have been following her for a couple of years now, watching her on webinars, watching her on online summits, following along on Instagram. She is so brilliant. She has taught me so much. She is a fantastic doctor who I am just so honored to be interviewing today. This has been a long time coming and the day is finally here. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Tanya Dempsey hi dr dempsey hi heidi so good to have you here i know i was just telling you that i have been listening to you on all different podcasts all different summits and you are really really paving the way in educating people about lyme disease chronic illness and even mcas so i love to just dive right into it right away because there is there's so sure. much to all of it and i'm wondering if you could just start out by discussing what even is Lyme disease and how prevalent is it
1: well Lyme disease is an infection right and i and i think that in general the community has sort of broadly general generalized Lyme disease as sort of an umbrella term that describes infections that can be transmitted by ticks and other, we call them vectors, we call them like other insects. Mm. And so I want to say that Lyme disease is a very specific bacteria called Borrelia burgdorferi. That bacteria, if you get infected with it, causes this whole array of symptoms and it, and the, the symptoms are driven by the infection but a lot of people say Lyme it's just easier mm-hmm. to say Lyme but what they mean is other tick-borne or vector-borne infections so other infections that can either go along with Lyme they sometimes go together we sometimes call them co-infections or other conditions that that Lyme causes so So I I think that to make it to simplify it, if we're talking about Lyme, it's you got bitten by a tick. You might not know that you were bitten by a tick. Lyme really can only be transmitted by very specific ticks. Mm. Um, and there's a specific bacteria that causes Lyme. The symptoms can start immediately. Often people don't, you know, notice it immediately, and that's part of the problem. Mm. And it can be insidious and then it can go on and become chronic. But in the, in the Northeast where I live, the majority of, of Lyme disease is caused by this Borrelia burgdorferi bacteria. But we keep learning every week, every month, every year, that there are cousins to this Borrelia burgdorferi bacteria. Mm. And those cousins can also cause a Lyme-like syndrome, an infection. And those cousins can be found everywhere in the country and all over the world. So at some point there was a thought that Lyme disease could only be if you're in New York or you, know, in, upstate, you know, uh, in the upper Northeast, but you can get Lyme disease or Lyme disease-like syndrome anywhere from these cousins of this bacteria. Again, there are other infections that can go along with it, and there are other insects that transmit infections that are similar to mm. Borrelia.
0: Wow. This is an amazing answer. And I appreciate you ap- making it really approachable and digestible for the common person that, that maybe is never, you know, they've heard about Lyme disease, but what even is it? You know, like you made it very... Easy to understand and I really appreciate okay, okay. that. And I have a follow-up question. So when you say cousin, and again, love that kind of language because that makes it mm-hmm. easy to understand. Would you would you say some of those cousins would be things like Babesia and those co infections?
1: No. Or is that a totally no. different thing? That's a totally different oh. thing. Oh. So the cousins are so there's a there's a genus. This is like a broad category, Borrelia. Okay. And then there are different species, uh, Borrelia burgdorferi. Borrelia burgdorferi okay. was the bacteria that was found in in Lyme, Old Lyme, Connecticut,
0: mm. and
1: by William burgdorferi. And it was sort of that that is how that stuck. But the cousins are things like Borrelia mayoni that was discovered by, I believe it was the Mayo Clinic, and they call it Mayo Knee. Okay. Then there's Borrelia epzellii, um, which is a cousin that's found in Europe and Asia. Borrelia garinii. So you've noticed that. Got sort it. Of, so okay. they're and all Borrelias. They're all Borrelia. Okay. So those are the cousins. But then there's another layer of Borrelia. So maybe these are like second cousins. Okay. Okay, and they are the tick-borne relapsing fever Borrelia. Mm-hmm. So these are bacteria that have the name Borrelia in the beginning, mm-hmm. but they cause a slightly different syndrome and infection. And they go by the names of Borrelia miyamotoi, Borrelia hermsi. These are the tick-borne, there are a few others. Mm-hmm. These are the tick-borne relapsing fever borrelia, and they call it that because some people who get this infection get relapsing fevers oh. as part of their their symptoms. But they're a borrelia genus, so they are like a like I said, like a second cousin. Okay. So lots of these borrelias yes. that you and can like get the infected umbrella with. that you said, yeah. All underneath so it. I like to call I like to use the term, and and maybe maybe it doesn't make sense yet, but. I like to, for, for, for the audience, but I'll try to explain it. I like to use the term vector-borne infection. Okay. And what a vector, a vector is something that is like infecting a host. Okay. So we're the host. We're, we're, we're hopefully not hosting a party like this, but unfortunately, that's what it turns out to be. The vector is the thing that's going to infect us. So I like to use the term vector-borne infection because by saying that, I'm broadly saying that the infection came from a vector. So in the case of Lyme, it's it's a tick, it's a specific type of tick that was transmitted this particular type of bacteria. But Babesia, which you mentioned, is a parasite, not a bacteria. Mm. It can be transmitted by the same ticks, but it can also be transmitted by other insects, including mosquitoes. Okay. You have Bartonella, which can be transmitted by ticks, but can also be transmitted by spiders and mosquitoes and biting flies and lice, fleas. Wow. And then directly from animals and animal scratches and animal bites. So these are infections that you have to get from something. Mm -hmm. So that's the vector, vector vector-borne infection. And I think when you say that then it's just sort of, you understand that you have to, we have to figure out which one it is, but very often Lyme is not even, I shouldn't say it's not even the problem. It is a problem. Lyme is a huge problem, but very often it's either associated with, or it's one of these other infections mm-hmm. that's actually leading, leading the way. Interesting. So it's becoming very, very complex.
0: Yeah. Kudos to you. Kudos to you for doing this work. Okay. And it's, got to be so confusing on the the medical side and you know there's tons of medical providers that don't even know a thing about this it's very much evolving so I really appreciate the work that you do I have another follow-up question to Lyme and I do want to go into the co-infections a little bit later on but pertaining to like Borrelia overall Lyme overall and the specific tick if someone is bit, let's say, hypothetically, by a, a tick that, that carries that, is it mm-hmm. guaranteed that they will get sick later on in life? Or could someone carry no, it? that's a gr- Okay.
1: It's a great question. Excellent question. So there's a certain percentage of ticks that are carrying Borrelia burgdorferi or these other infections, mm-hmm. The percentage of ticks carrying Lyme, that bacteria, is increasing over time. You know, so if we go back 20 years ago, maybe 5% or 10% of the ticks, don't, don't quote me on the statistics, mm-hmm. but it's a lower number of ticks carried the bacteria. So there was a good chance if you got bitten that you, you weren't exposed to the bacteria. Okay. But the percentage is now way over 50% in most areas, at least in the Northeast. So your chances of getting an infection through a tick bite has increased. Okay. Now, there's still a chance you're not going to get infected. And what I recommend is if patients find the tick and remove the tick, there are a number of labs that will actually test for some of these infections. Okay. Including Lyme, and if the tick that you pulled off of you doesn't—they didn't find Lyme inside of its, you know, self—then you're not going to get Lyme disease from that tick. And so, for a lot of my patients, it's very reassuring. When it might have something else in there, but maybe that other thing is not as difficult to treat, or it may be just, maybe just—maybe we find Babesia, and we have to decide what we're going to do about that. So, so the reality is that you don't have to be infected with it, but if you are infected and you didn't test the tick and you didn't know, you didn't know better, you know, back, back when I was growing up, you know, I'm sure like lots of people pulled ticks off of them and Mm -hmm. never thought anything of it. But I guess if you get enough, you know, there's a good chance that one of those ticks was going to carry something. And a lot of those people, you know, could know could do fine for a long time and then there are stressors on the immune system that then maybe change how the immune system was dealing with it Mm. so for some people they get infected their immune system just goes right in and just you know takes takes care of it and there there are others that are going to be infected and almost immediately the immune system is going to go awry and it's going to try to fight but it's not going to fight correctly and then the Lyme's going to hide and then that turns into a lifelong chronic thing. Wow. But for some people, they're fine for a long time, and then they have an event, something that stresses their immune system in a way. Could it could be uh, another infection? Could be they get mono or Epstein Barr, or or they get COVID, or they get something that then sort of changes how their immune system is dealing with it, and then it can come out, you know, twenty years later. Wow. Oh
0: my gosh, that's a really excellent explanation, because I, I've actually known, I know of someone that they, they don't have any symptoms, but they got through a functional doctor. The functional doctor is like, why don't we just test you for Lyme? And they came back that they have Lyme antibodies, I think, or something yeah. like that, but no Probably. symptoms whatsoever. So it's interesting, though, like what you say about the immune system. And everyone's different stressors. Yeah. And it's like in my world of non toxic living, I like to explain the toxic bucket, the toxic toxic kind of overflow. Yeah. And, you know, some people might have had yeah. different maybe some of those people that have a more extreme and insidious reaction or experience with Lyme, they they might have had some different stressors from toxins or environmental things throughout their
1: life too. Oh, absolutely. And I'm glad that you're sort of tying in that environmental piece because yes, absolutely. The stressor could be exposure to pesticides that are being sprayed outside. Exposure could be eating cereal with glyphosate. It could be other phthalates and, you know, compounds that change the immune response, the hormonal response, and then you know and then maybe it presents itself mm-hmm. or maybe it presents itself as something else but but yes there are people who have been exposed to lyme who have absolutely no symptoms whatsoever mm-hmm. but if they're going to a functional medicine doctor chances are they have some symptoms of something right. they're looking for answers so i would never say <laughs> that they actually don't have symptoms i don't know the patient right. i'm not going to diagnose i'm just going to say that usually there's something you know and and having antibodies that certainly doesn't mean that you have chronic Lyme, it just means that you're exposed, and then you have to figure out if if you know you mm-hmm. actually have infection
0: and what are some of those symptoms? I know it can vary, but what are some things to be on the lookout for and I also have heard that well, I know that lot Lyme chronic Lyme can be behind chronic illness in general what do you What are yeah. your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I mean the symptom list is tremendous, and and of course the symptom list for all these different types of infections yeah. really it's overlap. I know it's
0: a lot to pack and into then, a podcast.
1: <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot. But look, I mean, I think there are just some common things that some people deal with. And again, I'm not saying that if you have this symptom, you have Lyme disease, right? Let's let's be clear. There are mm-hmm. lots of causes for these symptoms, but headaches or migraines, not an uncommon. Symptom: People who've had Lyme and, or maybe persistent Lyme, and/or these co-infections or cousins, yeah. or second cousins, or third cousins. So headaches, fatigue, certainly at the top of the list. Some patients develop some neurologic symptoms that go unexplained. Sometimes the neurologic symptoms are severe. Sometimes they're very mild. Sometimes it's brain fog, difficulty concentrating you know we we see patients who generally did okay you know they get they actually get through high school and then in college or they're or even older they're working and they start to realize that they just not you know able to pick up things the way they used to and so you know they get diagnosed with ADHD as an adult mm-hmm. and then they look back and they say maybe I had it as a child but I don't think I'm not sure really it's definitely worse now. So maybe something happened between childhood and now. So that's a, that's not an uncommon symptom, but of course, you you know, you can see that with toxin exposure and and other things as well. Mm -hmm. I think joint pain, arthritis, very, very, very common. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, And in general, with the diet, gluten, dairy, all the things that people eat that may not be good for them, you can get joint pain too. Right. Right? So it's, it's really like, the way I think about it is that the symptoms are not necessarily always from the, the actual insult. It's not just the Lyme or the toxin. It's what your body's doing in dealing with those things. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I think there's so much overlap between the symptoms. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like it's the immune response in those areas of the body trying to deal with The the toxic load.
0: Wow, is that why maybe some autoimmune symptoms can can be related to all of this? Because it's like the body just trying to do its thing, despite fighting.
1: It's fighting, you know. Autoimmune diseases or autoimmune being Mm autoimmune-ish. For a lot of my patients, I put the ish on the end (laughs) because it's not. They don't have an autoimmune disease, Mm -hmm. but they have autoimmune markers mm-hmm. or they have a flavor in their immune system that looks autoimmune. Mm-hmm. Auto just means self. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a self sort of attack, mm-hmm. attack on self mm-hmm. with the immune system. Maybe it's trying to deal with a toxic load. Maybe it's trying to deal with an infection and, and it's going awry. And some people have a genetic potential for their immune system to go in that direction and start attacking itself mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in places where it shouldn't it should be attacking the bad thing yeah. but instead it's attacking attacking you so a lot of patients have this sort of we'll call it the flavor of autoimmune uh, but they're not autoimmune and certainly there are some preliminary studies that show that Lyme disease could do that like we that we can see antibodies develop these auto antibodies, these mm-hmm. antibodies to self. Mm-hmm without having an autoimmune disease from a Lyme infection. But also because I specialize in, in the immune system and immune dysfunction, particularly a condition known as mast cell activation syndrome, yes. I believe, and actually we have I have a paper that's gonna be published in the next couple of oh months, gosh. looking at the role of, and, and this is in the medical literature, we're looking at the role of mast cell activation syndrome on the development of these auto antibodies. And what's becoming clearer to us is that the mast cells really do talk to other parts of the immune system and are probably playing a role in telling the immune system, oh, make this antibody, oh make that antibody, mm. attack attack, you know, attack itself without it actually doing anything. It's not doing anything dangerous. It's just that we're doing blood work and we're finding these crazy antibodies. And I have patients, you know, they really, they think they are dying of lupus or scleroderma or these like crazy autoimmune diseases because they have markers in their blood and they have some symptoms. But really what they have at the root is a dysfunctional immune system. It's not, they don't have those actual diseases, but they have a dysfunctional immune system, mast cell activation syndrome, and then toxins, infection... You know, lime in that mix, barnella, Babesia, all this stuff, and it's totally becoming this perfect storm of stuff. Mm. And so, a lot of times, they wind up in the rheumatologist office, and the rheumatologist tells them, "No, it's it's not anything, but I don't know why you have these crazy antibodies." And so, we're publishing the paper, looking at that uh, that association, because we I feel so strongly about that being a a, a one one piece of that puzzle yeah. of autoimmunity. Wow.
0: Well, please keep me posted when that article goes Definitely. live. And this Definitely. podcast will be live before then, but I can go retrospect you know, later on and add in the link to that study. Excellent. So it's really exciting. Excellent. Plus, I want to read through it myself. So let's dive even yeah. deeper into mast cell activation syndrome. Like, okay. Again, okay. go, in, go into the basics for the, the common person listening. They might have never heard of okay. this before. What is it? Okay. What are some of those symptoms? What additional information can you share about MCAS? Right.
1: So I would just go really basic first. Most of your listeners have heard of allergies, mm-hmm. right? Because you know, either you have allergies or your family member has allergies or a friend has allergies, Right. So allergies are actually caused by mast cells. That's actually at the root of allergy. So these mast cells are are white blood cells. They're they're found in a lot of parts of the body. But, you know, a lot of people think of white blood cells in the bloodstream. They don't live in the bloodstream. They live in our tissue. They live in the respiratory tract, in the nose, in the eyes. Mm. They live on the skin. I didn't know the that. The stomach. <laughs> oh, see? Yeah. I'm teaching you tonight too. Good. So they, they live everywhere where there's like like organs or tissues mm. and they are our front line to the environment. So in the case of allergy, they let's say you're allergic to pollen and the mast cells, let's say in your nose, in your eyes, your skin, see the pollen. Those mast cells will get a signal, oh, danger, and it will essentially explode. These how, mast cells work first and foremost as this sort of, again, frontline like I'm, gonna, I'm going to, to explode and kill the bad thing <laughs> that's invading the body. Um, and again, they're try, trying to be helpful. So it, it releases chemicals. One of the chemicals that people, some people might have heard of is called histamine. And histamine is a really inflammatory chemical. Actually, mast cells make a lot of chemicals. But in, in the allergy realm, histamine is one of the main things that, that the mast cells will produce. And that's why people take antihistamines to help their allergies. So they might take Claritin or Zyrtec or Allegra or Benadryl. And what that does is it sort of stops or, or sort of blocks the effects of all that histamine that the mast cell released during allergy season or an allergic attack. So it's 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 a foreign thing, pollen, cats, whatever, mast mm-hmm. cells explode, release the chemicals wherever those chemicals are being released is where the symptoms are going to happen. So if it's happening in the respiratory tract, it's going to be respiratory symptoms. If it's in the skin, it's going to be hives or itching, even eczema. If it's uh, for some people their allergy is in their stomach, so they eat a food, let's say they're allergic to, they vomit, diarrhea, mm. pain. So, so wherever the problem is, wherever your mast cells are more sensitive is where the reaction's gonna happen. So that's not mast cell activation syndrome. That's just, that's just an abnormal mast cell reacting to an allergen. Some people who have allergies also have mast cell activation syndrome, but they don't have to. Some people really just have allergies. It's, you know, spring, the trees are blooming, but the rest of the time, they're fine. They don't have any respiratory symptoms. They don't have any skin symptoms, GI symptoms, but allergy symptoms could be even more broader than that. I, I'm making, those are the general things people have yeah, heard of. Yeah, but, this is really good. But, but in mast cell activation syndrome, the mast cells, which are, again, they're there to protect you from the environment. They, in allergy, it's an abnormal reaction to the environment, right? We should be able to be like, okay, we can little pollen, we're fine. But the mast cells are like, no, that's bad for you. So, but mast cells can react to other things in the environment. They can react to infection. They can react to toxins. They can react to various exposures of various kinds. And generally speaking, if you don't have this condition, if you are, exposed to a toxin, to a infection, generally speaking, the the mast cells, along with the rest of the immune system, will kick in, do what it needs to do, take care of things, and then reset, just sort of like wait for the next event to happen, okay? That's somebody, you know, with normal mast cell function. In mast cell activation syndrome, their mast cells over time become more reactive to the environment and almost to the point where they don't even know what they're reacting to it becomes a disconnect between the actual exposures and the reactivity so first it's like oh i you know ate this and i reacted i ate you know tomatoes and i reacted then over time it's i ate chicken and i reacted and then and then i ate you know, something else. And then they just become more generalized. They just start to see every protein, every toxin, everything as bad. Mm. And so in mast cell activation syndrome, the mast cells are acting totally inappropriately in multiple parts of the body. Very, very often. It's not just one part. It's people have various symptoms everywhere. Every organ, every system can be affected. And it's actually quite, quite common. So the estimates are, are somewhere around 17% of the population that was in a study done in Germany. Wow. 17% of the population. And, and I think that's actually an underestimate. So I think we're probably talking maybe it's closer to 20%. One in five people, Wow. one in six people have this, but there's a very broad spectrum mm-hmm. for how it can manifest and there are going to be people who are really very mild and maybe they just have mild allergies and a few other things you know but and then on the other end of the spectrum you know people who are just reactive to their the entire world around them so i think this is important really important Mm -hmm. for your listeners Mm -hmm. because of the the toxic world we live in what we what we understand is if we look even from just a toxin perspective there's usually an initiating event, there's some exposure to a toxin. And often it's, it's you know, things that people don't even realize very often. Somebody sprayed insecticide around the house or in the house for ants or, you know, something yeah. like that. Or they, you know, fly overhead and they spray for mosquitoes or the field you know down the street the farm down the street is being sprayed with pesticides to help you know their their crops or whatever and so there's a there's an initiating event there's some exposure sometimes again known sometimes not known and then over time actually my colleague dr claudia miller who's down at antonio she has a she's a she's an allergist immunologist who has an interest in multiple chemical sensitivities and chemical intolerance specifically or tilt toxicant induced loss of tolerance she she has i love this slide she has it's like an iceberg on a slide and she you know basically like you're under the water all the initiating events are happening, you're getting exposed and then the the other environmental stuff is exposing and then, and then you break through and all Mm. of a sudden there's the tip of the iceberg with time and more toxin exposure to the point where then it just becomes, the symptoms just become almost ubiquitous. Like it's just happening all the time. And now those past exposures are gone. You're not, you're not still being exposed to pesticides, but it already happened. Mm. And so that's all driven by the mast cells and i bring that up because we've actually published a paper together with dr miller about the role of mast cells in the development of chemical intolerance
0: i'll need that link
1: yes for sure so so mast cells again important for to, to protect you can go awry and then start actually basically impacting you like fighting you releasing these chemicals when they are reacting. Histamine is one. There are thousands of chemicals that these mast cells can release. So those different chemicals can do different things in the body. And and sometimes those symptoms are like like allergy. Mm -hmm. But you don't need allergic symptoms to have MCAS. They can be things like GI symptoms, neurologic symptoms, you can see depression you can see anxiety you can see brain fog f- headaches fatigue joint pain because you have lots mm-hmm. of mast cells in the joint in the joints and, uh, and again like every system in the body can be affected wow
0: yeah mcas goes real deep <laughs> and it's crazy crazy deep. that there's 17 <laughs> percent if not more to your point of people that yeah. have this and don't even know so would you say, based on what you were explaining about your colleague in this paper that you produced, would you say that the main reason these are so high is because of the chemical
1: world we live in? And just yeah. I I, mm-hmm. I have to yeah. say it. Yeah. you know. I think I think we have enough data. Do we need more? Absolutely. Yeah. Are there still pieces of the puzzle that we don't understand completely? Absolutely. But but, if you look at the world a hundred years ago, well, if you look at it ten thousand years ago and then you look at it a thousand years ago, and then you look at it a hundred mm-hmm. years ago and then fifty years ago, and then now you will see, you know, and and we have enough data. I mean, ten thousand years ago, no. Right. but certainly in the last hundred years, you can look at rates of certain diseases, you can look at the rates of autoimmune diseases mm-hmm. skyrocketing. Mm-hmm autism skyrocketing. And actually, there is a link between autism and mast cell activation syndrome, which is why I bring it up. So all these diseases of the modern world are increasing dramatically. Mm-hmm. And so there's no... So of course, if we have all these things in our environment that that our, um, our cells, our body has never been primed to recognize before, we're, we're not evolutionarily developed to to deal with these things, right? It takes tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years for, for evolution to sort of change our genes. Maybe mm-hmm. it will eventually. Maybe we'll select genes that can help us deal with the toxins in the air. But in the meantime, we haven't adapted to that. Mm-hmm. And so we're exposed to all these things. Our immune system is seeing things it never saw, you know, from the beginning of time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I think that, that MCAS is mm-hmm. the consequence.
0: So all the more reason to embrace a lower toxic life as much as you can. You know, there's a lot out of our control, but I do believe that there is still a lot that we are in control of as far as the food we eat, the water we drink, the, the products within our home. Even sometimes I'm, I'm now talking about the fabrics, the clothing we're wearing and furniture and being mindful of, you know, these different chemicals that, it does, it does pay off. I'm trying to motivate the audience to you know, make these decisions to live a lower toxic life because in the end, it does help your immune system. It does help you you know, prevent and reverse disease. I'm not going to say, oh, you're going to cure everything by going non-toxic, but it makes it a lot easier for your body to heal.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you said that. And I think some people get frustrated, you know, they make these changes in their life and they don't feel better and they think, oh, you know, why am I not feeling better? I'm not, you know, I've changed my pillows and my mattress Mm -hmm. and my, you know, all this stuff. And, you know, what I say, and I'm with you, it's just, it's all additive. It's not necessarily going to change everything. Although, although I certainly have patients that yes, they change their mattress or they change something in their environment and it is a huge difference Mm -hmm. for them but just because they don't feel the difference doesn't mean it's not important because anything we can do as a as a community and as a population will just help everybody ultimately but it takes time time. commitment yeah
0: absolutely so shifting over to some solutions what obviously the the lower toxic living is is one Potential solution, sure. but when it comes to Lyme disease and MCAS specifically, mm-hmm. and even some of those co infections, and I know we didn't really go into those co infections. So if you want to, before even going to solutions, if you feel like there's anything okay. left over that you want to share about those co infections, please feel free to share right now. I okay. just know that there's so much to all of this that I'm there's trying so to much, stay a bit yeah. focused.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think that I think we did a good job just. Sort of giving the overview of infection and and really just calling the vector board. Uh So I think we can can leave it at that. Maybe that's part two to this podcast where we dig deeper or something. Yes. (laughs) Sorry, I'm not inviting myself. No, we can always do more.
0: Please come back. There's always room for more.
1: I think people want to know, okay, what you know, what what can I do now preventatively and also maybe in response to maybe some symptoms. And the first step, at least on the MCAS side of things, is eliminate triggers. First, you have to identify triggers. And so, so part of the healthy living part of it is really, you know, you are trying to figure out what in your environment is impacting you and potentially causing the mast cells to be more dysfunctional, more reactive. So that's this is the hard part. This is step one. You've got to figure out what in your environment is potentially triggering you. If you're living in a moldy, House, or you're working in a, a moldy place, or you go to school in a moldy, you know, building. That's a tr- that's potentially a trigger. You know, some of that you have control over, some of it you absolutely don't have control over. But you might have to make some decisions based on how you feel in these different buildings and areas, right? So, so you have to. But first, you have to figure out if that is what is keeping you sick mm-hmm. or making you sick. Mm-hmm. You you know, there are obviously a lot lots of environmental things to look at. There's food to look at. What are you putting in your body? As a that's a major trigger. You know, are you getting? Are you missing nutrients as a trigger? At your body de, is deficient, and that's why your your mast cells are more reactive. Do you have an infection, like Lyme disease, Epstein Barr, or post COVID? You got a virus like COVID, and the immune system went awry, and it just continues to 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 react that way. So you have to identify what the trigger or triggers are and work on eliminating them one at a time, mm-hmm. whatever you can control. Mm-hmm. You know, again, it's always a balance of what you can eliminate and what you can't eliminate. You know, what what you have to, like, at some point, your body has to learn to live with. Mm-hmm. But the first step for sure is is whatever you can, you do. And then you work with somebody who's knowledgeable about mast cell activation syndrome in looking at either treatment directly for these mast cells and mast cell stabilizers or antihistamines, or there are lots of things that we use, both natural and pharmacologic. And then, and then always you know, working with, it could be a functional medicine practitioner, integrative practitioner, looking at you know, what these root causes, like what else other than the environment, or maybe along with the environment is, is keeping you sick. Or not feeling as best you know the best you can, and helping you look at your gut and your microbiome, um, which is a real key to your immune system. Yeah. And you have so many mast cells in your gut, and so if the gut is not is not functioning well, you're not going to digest your food well. You're going to react to food. You're not going to absorb your nutrients, and that alone could be a huge huge driver. So you want to work with somebody who has some knowledge of these things that you have to look at. And, you know, and then work slowly through everything. Do
0: you have, first of all, thank you. Second of all, do you have any, I guess, resources or recommendations for people listening that they, they want to get to the root of this? They want to work with an expert. Do you offer virtual sessions? Do you have other people or resources that we can point the audience towards to get on this path of healing if they maybe suspect that something's going on?
1: Well, first, you know, I do have, I do a lot of education, right? Mm -hmm. And you, and you mentioned that early on, I do tons of podcasts, tons of webinars, tons of writing and articles and blogs. And so I encourage people just to read, Mm -hmm. you know, so I have a Facebook page, Dr. Tanya Dempsey, Instagram is Dr. Tanya Dempsey MD, and then my website, drtanyadempsey.com, my practice is AIM Center for Personalized Medicine. The website is aimcenterpm.com. And then I think I have a YouTube station too and okay. whatever it's called, YouTube channel. I just really want to get the word out mm-hmm. because the reality is that I won't be able to treat everybody. Mm-hmm. And honestly, it like really, really breaks my heart. I want I want to help everybody, but you know, I, I can't. So whatever I could do to get the information out to help yeah. is really my my primary goal. But then, you know, there may be people who are, are able to come, maybe they're local or they can fly in and see me. You know, unfortunately, with the new telemedicine rules that are in effect now, because after during COVID, it was very easy. But now after, after the pandemic, doing telemedicine alone is very difficult. There's a lot of like layers of regulation. Hmm. So I do require patients to come in in person okay. for their first visit. And then we try to manage as much as we can remotely along with, alongside their local doctors who should learn about yeah, this too. Okay. I have I have a, a great PA in my office, Dr. Colin Renaud, who's seeing patients, if I can't see them, yeah, he's starting to see a lot of them. And and then yeah, we do have. There are people all over the country that do some of this work, and you know, it's it's just a matter of finding finding them. You know, and we're we're working on trying to figure out if we can figure out like a a, a list yeah, of practitioners like who are doing this or something. <laughs> we're not. We're not there yet, network exactly. We're not there yet, but you know that's to come okay. eventually. Uh, but I just think you know, reading and then talking and talking to your your providers. You know, if you're seeing a, a nurse practitioner or a PA, a physician, whoever you're seeing, just you know, really talk to them about the stuff. Print out the stuff or send them to my website. Um, we talk, I talk to other providers all the time. If doctors want to call and you know they want to discuss a case, if a patient can't come to see me in person, you know I just I want the medical community to to start to embrace this too because yeah. they're the ones who are going to help our patients. Right. But it it almost is taking the patients to go to the medical community to convince them that they're sick and yep. you know not doing well and, and need help. But you know if that's what it takes, that's you know, that's what I encourage.
0: Yeah. I've heard people going in with studies and showing their doctors and, you know, there's a lot of doctors that deny things like that, but at the end of the day, you know, people just want to feel better and you'll, you'll do anything to feel better. So.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. But that's one of the reasons why I publish in the medical literature, why I feel so, so, so strongly about putting it there because, doctors do have a little bias mm-hmm. you know sure you could bring them a book you know written by a you know functional medicine guru that's great you know but the doctor's going to look at that and be like all right whatever but if but you're public, if you're published you're you're pulling publications from the medical literature that's peer reviewed mm-hmm. they they're looking at that as okay, there's some evidence, mm-hmm. there are people who are studying this. And that's, this is one of the things that we have to do is just make this more acceptable yeah. by by medical professionals. Absolutely. So, anyway, I had to say that because that's like one of the things that I'm trying to yeah, do.
0: Yeah, thank you. Well, I, I really <laughs> yeah. would love for you to send me links to your articles. And then I'll be sure to link your yeah. social channels and your website and all of that, because these are amazing resources. And I hope that, yeah, everyone listening can learn even more beyond this podcast by checking out your resources but this has been fantastic thank you so much dr dempsey one more thing before you go are you subscribed to lifelong podcast have you left the rating and review following along on instagram at lifelong underscore path and at holistic if you're not doing so already consider doing it to support our show and to help spread this message
1: near and far thank you all and we'll see you next week